We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 again as we are in week 3 in our examination of themes from the book of Acts. And having looked last time at the church gathered, today we're going to look at the theme of the church ordered. And I would have us begin by recognizing an obvious biblical reality and a reality of human society, which is the necessity, even the inevitability, of leadership. If you are like me, you are apprehensive as we approach the November elections in our country. I think a good part of the American people would be fine to just elect no one for president this year and maybe try, uh, try again a year from now and see if we can do better than start the process over. But because humans differ from one another, and especially because they are sinful and selfish and wayward, every human group requires leadership and eventually establishes leaders. Some groups fight against this. The founding of Chaz or CHOP out in Seattle back in May was led largely by what we call anarchists who despise authority, but they discovered they could not survive without some structure, and so they quickly disbanded. Some churches reacting against abuses of power that they observe seek to establish a church without anyone particularly in charge. But as A.W. Tozer once wisely wrote, I think that uh, in churches without a pastor, the real pastor is the member of the church who has the best argument against having a pastor. We should not have to observe human society for long without realizing that many of our problems come from having bad leaders, but that the solution is not found in eliminating leaders, but in improving them. And scripturally, we, we see our Lord from the start doing His work through designated human leaders. We see that clearly in the establishment of the nation of Israel under Moses, and then Joshua, and then the judges, and then the kings, with a long-term view towards a perfect king, a Messiah. But when Messiah comes, he doesn't hang out very long before he goes back to heaven and leaves his kingdom in the hands once again of imperfect humans. That doesn't mean he is no longer involved. We believe Jesus still rules his church as king, but his rule is mediated through the ministry of those we variously call pastors, elders, bishops, deacons, trustees, officers, or priests. Those in these roles often disappoint, infuriate, injure, and embarrass the members of the church, but they are there by divine appointment, and we do well to understand their place in our lives and in the purposes of God. So we begin where the church began with the office of apostle. Now that term apostle with its root post simply means a sent one. In the general sense, all believers are sent ones. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. But there is a more narrow or specific sense in which that word apostle refers to the founders of the church who nurtured her in her infancy and laid her foundation with the New Testament scriptures. Acts 1 begins with the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and then the focus turns to the 11 leaders who had worked with Jesus those previous three years. And Acts 1 says that after they had witnessed Jesus ascend, verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all with one accord or with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this is the first church. 
It, it included three groups noted here, the family of Jesus, the women who followed him, and the 11 disciples, now known as apostles. And you can observe in the list that even among the small group of leaders, there were leaders. Peter is always mentioned first. He isn't a king. He's not a pope, but he was the leader of the leaders. James and John and then get the mention because Jesus had given them a special place among the disciples as well. This is the hierarchical structure, and it was set up by the Lord himself. So let's stop there for a moment and think a bit about our heart attitude toward authority. Humans are all over the map on, on this. Maybe you can identify yourself on a particular spectrum. Some of us are generally appreciative of those in charge, whether parents or pastors, principals, coaches, policemen, mayors. They are elevated in our thinking and our inclination is to follow where they lead. Others of us, we're rebels. We don't like anyone having power and it bothers us. And so we defy and we oppose. The root of our disposition can sometimes be explained by our early experiences with authorities, primarily our parents, but some of it has to do with personality given by God. If you have three or more kids, you can probably see it in your children, the distinctions here. If you are a pastor, a teacher, or a coach, you can certainly see it. Some in your flock will treat you with reverence so that when you speak, they listen, they follow quickly and gladly. Others, well, they are oppositional. They argue and they whine. They do not trust and they rebel. Of course, many of us are somewhere in between those aren't we? Depending on the context, the qualities of the leader and so forth. Rank yourself on, on this. Take a minute. If, if you're a 10 on a 10-point scale, that means you're a total rebel who hates authority. And a 1 means you're naturally very compliant and appreciate your leaders. Where do you tend to fall? I would expect most of us probably would identify ourselves somewhere toward the middle of the spectrum. Now, as Americans and as Protestants, we are more likely than most to be skeptical of our leaders. We left the Roman church in rebellion against the bad leadership and its mistaken theology. We broke from England in rebellion against the oppressive king, and that's our heritage. And so as Protestants and as Americans, we set up systems that are designed to restrict the power of our leaders, to hold them in check, to diminish their power. We recognize how flawed people can be in leadership and how power does seem to corrupt. And that makes sense, but it can often become imbalanced and even unhealthy. Part of what we need to get from Scripture is that our Lord is our perfect leader, worthy of total and glad submission, and that our perfect leader often places us under the authority of imperfect human leaders, whom we are to who are responsible to respect and obey and support at least, at least up to a point. Now we see in Scripture that from time to time, faithfulness to our supreme leader means that we must rebel against the lower level leaders who oppose him. Some of our brethren in California, even right now, are opting to do exactly that, holding indoor worship services against the directives of their state's governor. At times, that may be necessary to be faithful to our Lord. But the general call of Scripture is toward compliance, towards support and appreciation for those whom God has raised up as authorities in their various jurisdictions. Well, back to Acts 1. So there were 11 apostles after there were 
12 disciples, but Judas Iscariot had betrayed the Lord and taken his own life, so they were down one. And the first story post-ascension in the book of Acts is about the filling of a church office, about rounding out the leadership team. In Acts 1, we read the prime leader, Peter, speaking to what could be regarded as the first congregational meeting of the church in Jerusalem. 120 were present for this, and Peter after reminding them what had happened to Judas Iscariot, says this in verse 21 of chapter 1, Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Judas, or Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Well, you can notice right away that they were looking to promote one of the longtime followers of Jesus into the ranks of the twelve. Presumably, they were choosing among uh, those who were in the 70 referred to in the gospel accounts who were important to the mission of Jesus, although not included in the most intimate 12. You can see that the role under consideration is referred to here as the ministry of apostleship. For some reason, not made entirely clear, 12 was the magic number. 11 was too few, 13 apparently too many. 12, of course, would have matched the number of sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the book of Revelation, it actually tells us that the 12 gates of the heavenly city had upon them the names of the 12 apostles. Now, what I hope you get out of this is an appreciation of the importance and necessity and the scripturalness of having leaders in the church. The apostles were for it. Jesus was for it. God has always been for it. Human nature necessitates it. Maturity accepts it, even while we all recognize the possible and the probable negatives that come with it. In the book of Acts, we encounter a number of offices or roles established in the early church. There were elders and overseers, deacons, teachers, prophets, but the first were apostles. By and large, the church throughout history has regarded the office of apostle as being a foundational one, which has reference to both its importance and its temporariness. A foundation for a building is laid at the start of the construction process, and you only get one. Once laid, everything else builds upon it, but it is not repeated. You may have many windows and doors and walls, but only one foundation. And in Acts or in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul writes that the house of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You may remember Jesus telling the leader of the apostles that he was the rock, and upon that rock, he was going to, Jesus was going to build his church. And I'll spare you the full argument, but Reformed interpreters take that to mean that the foundation of the church is located in the profession of faith that Peter made when he said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and further, that the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it is located in the words and teachings that they provide. Thus, the commonality of the apostles, referring to the agents of New Testament revelation, and the prophets, the agents of Old Testament revelation, 
uh, is that the, 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 they laid the foundation of the Word of God for the church, Old and New Testament. All that the church is rests upon the truth of God, which they relay to us in the Scriptures. And so we sing, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. Now, with the provision of the Scriptures in their entirety, it is understood that the role of apostle would run its course and then be no more. Indeed, in the early church, the second generation of leaders made it clear in, in their writings that they were not of the same status as the apostles. So most Christians nowadays have no anticipation of an ongoing apostolic office. But a sizable, sizable minority will still use that term to refer to those who occupy their most esteemed offices. Among these, we include the Mormons, certainly uh, certain Pentecostal groups, and in fact, the Roman Catholics. The common denominator in all of these groups is that they believe in continuing revelation. That is the progressive unfolding of God's will, which is contrasted with the Reformation idea that scripture is sufficient and supreme and complete. Then as the church was spread beyond Jerusalem into more Gentile context, even while the apostles were living, we see the establishment of church rule under the guidance of those who were given the title of elder or overseer. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. This was the pattern of church planting by the apostle Paul. He would enter a community, preached and taught, and then he eventually entrusted the leadership of that local assembly to these that he calls elders, the latter of which was rendered, or he called them overseers. Now that last term, overseers, is rendered in the King James Version, by the way, as bishop. Those terms in the Greek are presbyteros and episkopos, probably uh, connected, uh, the term uh, presbyteros probably connected to the Jewish elder on the one hand and the term episkopos to the Gentile leaders on the other. The ancient Hebrews were governed by those they called elders. The synagogue was led by a group of elders with a particular synagogue leader at their head, but ruling officials in Gentile context were often referred to as episkopoi, overseers. But it would have been the same office, regardless of which term you used. In Paul's address to the elders of the a church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, Luke records it in verse 17 that Paul summoned to himself the elders of the church in Ephesus, and then in his address to them, he spoke to the nature of their work in verse 28 by saying this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Titus chapter 1 also uses those two terms, elder and overseer, interchangeably. So these were the leaders, the governors, the shepherds of the local church. And over time, there were deacons that were also appointed to oversee the more physical concerns of the church. And over time, the office of the pastor, as we think of it, arose. And the pastor was essentially, like Peter among the apostles, the leader of the leaders, the primary teacher within the local assembly. James was the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Timothy, the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus. These men did not occupy an office above the other elders, but as one of them leading that group. Interestingly, my doctoral dissertation was on the development of these various offices, so I am resisting the urge to say more than may be helpful. So let me 
move on. And we transition to consider the means by which these officers were put into their positions. How did elders become elders and deacons become deacons? The New Testament does not provide churches with a, a set of bylaws, but we do see plenty to guide us in the epistles and in the examples we read in the book of Acts. And part of what we learn is that there was not one consistent method that applied to every situation. The apostles, with the exception of Matthias, were selected by the Lord himself and by the Lord himself alone. Paul also seems to have been the chosen of the Lord without any normal human means. Later, we see the traveling apostles, mostly Paul, taking the initiative to establish an original group of elders in the cities where he preached the gospel. Acts 14.23 is especially relevant on this point. During Paul's first missionary journey, this one with Barnabas, Luke reports that, uh, again, they appointed elders for them in each church. With prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord. What is not clear is whether the other believers in the church had any particular say or influence over the selection of their leaders. What we read elsewhere suggests they probably did. I say that because in Acts 1, the process of filling that last apostolic office included congregational participation. After Peter sets forth the basic requirements for the new apostle they were looking for, we read that they put forward two men. It's not certain who the they is to denote, but since verse 15 recorded the presence of 120 persons at the gathering, it seems most likely that they all had a hand in the selection of the two who were finalists for that last apostolic office. A clearer example of congregational participation is found in the sixth chapter of Acts, where seven members of the church were chosen to oversee the provision of food for the needy members. Once again, the apostles set forth the number and the qualifications desirable in these seven, but then they charged the congregation with the responsibility to choose them. So Luke records this in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. In this example of leadership selection, we see an interesting interplay between the leadership of the church and the congregation. The leaders determined the qualities needed. The congregation made the selection. The leaders then ordained the new members of the board of seven for their particular role. The leadership selection process in Acts 6, it is the most explicitly presented case in all of the New Testament. As, and as such, it provides a, a role for the congregation. One can easily assert that the wisest and most biblical approach then is to establish leaders for a congregation involving and including the consent of those who would be governed and led by them. But before we leave the consideration of how leaders get selected, we should ponder the role of God himself in the matter. When looking for a new apostle in Acts 1, the small congregation of 120 had narrowed the choice down to two. And then, and then we read this. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship. And we see from this prayer that the apostles assumed that God had already chosen someone. The role of the church then was not so much to choose this person as to discern God's choice. 
Apparently, discerning God's choice was not that easy a task. They were able to narrow it down to two, but then they went to the method of the lot to hopefully pinpoint the man of God's selection. Presumably, once Matthias was chosen by the combined method of the congregational vote and the casting of lots, they, the understanding would have been that he was made an apostle by God, not so much by election or by lot, but by God. The deliberations of the people, even that casting of lots, would have been seen as God manifesting what was his will. Later in the book of Acts, we come across a similar perspective articulated by Paul in his speech in Acts 20 again to the elders from Ephesus. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, the agent of selection is regarded as, as divine. The Holy Spirit put them in office. And so as in Acts 1, we would not see this as suggesting an absence of human involvement. The members of the church were expected to identify, according to certain criteria, those whom God had selected to be their leaders. It is the role of the church, including the congregation, to identify, recognize, collaborate, and then celebrate God's choice. It's, of course, possible for the church to err in a selection, but the biblical perspective is that God's choice and the choice of the church were really one and the same thing. God's choice would be logically prior to the choice of the church, but the two, God's choice and the church's choice, were viewed synchronistically, not as, not as contrasting ideas. In other words, the recommendation of our session and the vote of our congregation about a year ago to make Ben Burkholder an associate pastor of our church is to be seen primarily as the choice of God mediated through a vote of our members. Now, if that approach is to yield a happy result, if it is to be legitimate, it's important that God's word respecting church leaders be known and valued, but also it's important that prayer be a critical part of the selection. When Jesus was about to select his 12 key followers, it says in the scriptures that he spent all night in prayer. And as we get into the history of the early church, Acts provides three examples of prayerful leadership selection. Acts 1.24, as noted, indicates that the apostles made request of God that he reveal his choice of a new apostle. And then they trusted him to reveal that even through the casting of lots. And then in Acts 13, the leaders of the church in Antioch, they, they, they went to prayer with fasting to seek the will of God before they appointed Paul and Barnabas as the missionaries to establish new churches. And it's no surprise to us then that they chose those leaders for local churches by appealing to God in prayer. And again, Luke writes, Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, listen, with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So a study of Scripture does not provide the church with a, a clear, unambiguous, detailed process for leadership selection. Several approaches could be regarded as within the parameters for identifying New Testament leaders. One could argue that a pastor may be appointed by someone outside the local congregation, like a bishop in some denominations, that a pastor may be selected by the existing elders of a church or elected by a whole congregation, or maybe even best by a combination of these three factors, but I close with a couple of applications for us at North Park Church. First, I say to all of us, when we have an opportunity to be involved in the process of leadership, leadership selection, whether it's in the civic arena or in the church, 
we are responsible to exercise our role with due regard for the Word of God about what our leaders are to be and what they are to do. It is a serious undertaking with major ramifications. We must engage it prayerfully, mindful that we are seeking to identify God's choice, His preference, not our own. The downfall of many congregations and even whole denominations can be traced to a careless and prayerless, self-interested approach to leadership selection. May such never happen among us. And finally, I speak to those of us who are now in leadership roles and to those of you who someday soon may be. My thoughts simply echo what Paul said to those elders from Ephesus, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. We're to view ourselves as being in office by the appointment of God Himself, Jesus moving by His Holy Spirit. So we are responsible and accountable to our fellow members in the church to a degree. But more ultimately, more seriously, we're responsible to the church's King Himself. Some of you voted for me to be the pastor here at North Park Church. Thank you for doing so. I have a heart to make you glad for that choice. But more than that, I believe I am here by the calling and appointment of my Savior. Ultimately, I answer to Him, and I operate in His authority. On difficult days in ministry, it is critical that we remember those realities that we see operating in the early church and still apply to us today. So the greatest thing happening in the world today, it's not... Donald Trump making America or keeping America great again. And it isn't Joe Biden rescuing us from Donald Trump. It is Jesus Christ building his church. And what a joy and what a challenge it is to be co-laborers with him in that great and joyful task which will endure beyond every election, beyond every virus, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our great leader and master and father and king, we bless you for your guidance over your church. And we pray that, Lord, you would guide us to put into offices at North Park Church in our Presbyterian denomination and beyond those who are called of you, appointed by you, and ready to lead with wisdom and faithfulness. Give us such leaders at North Park Church. And Lord, in our nation as well, we pray that we would be faithful to you to exercise what powers we have to place in office those of your choosing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.